This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. So welcome back to part two of the beginning of a series on LGBTQ theology or uh, sort of biblical arguments. Uh, and what we're essentially trying to do is present some arguments for an affirming position of uh, both gay marriage and affirmation of uh, transgender equality. And uh, the main thing we're talking about in these first uh, two episodes is this whole notion that there's this divine ideal and that gender complementarianism is is an, an integral part of this so-called divine ideal. And therefore, uh, anything outside of, uh, of cisgender, heterosexual, monogamous relationship is essentially wrong and sinful because it falls outside of the divine ideal. That's what we're tackling. Nate, you want to give maybe a 30-second summary on sort of your view of our, our first conversation? Sure. Yeah. So we talked about how lots of verses have been used over the last number of years to show that heterosexual relationships are God's norm and ideal and how over time scholars have come along and said, hey, that's not really what that verse is talking about. That's not really what that verse is talking about either. So over time, people have kind of hunkered down on Genesis 1 and 2 to say like, okay, I get it. Some of these other verses don't work, but in the beginning, we see God's clear ideal for human sexuality and relationships. So that, that's what we talked about. Um, is there actually this divine ideal? Is the goal that the biblical writers had in mind to get back to Genesis 1 and 2, to this quote-unquote ideal state? And, uh, and we said no, that there's something else going on here. Right. So that was essentially big picture. Like, is that even the right way to think about this? A return to some, you know, primeval ideal. Uh, this conversation is going to zoom in quite a bit because essentially when it comes to this war uh, to uphold the, tr you know, traditional view, uh, condemning gay marriage, condemning any sort of uh, break from uh, sexuality and gender norms, uh, the what we talked about is there's kind of the first wave, and then, like you said, there's been the second wave, Nate, that roots this uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. Specifically, it's all rooted in, in the existence of Genesis 2.24, this, this line about a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to uh, his wife, and they become one flesh. Oh, leave and cleave? <laughs> leave and cleave. Um, and, and so one piece is, uh, you know, so many people have pointed out, like, Jesus... We don't have any evidence that Jesus ever talked about anything like homosexuality or gender identity, any of that. Interestingly, Jesus does talk about eunuchs. We'll get to that uh, when we pick up the series uh, down the road. Um, but then what other people do is they go, well, look, Jesus quoted Genesis 2.24, and therefore Jesus is affirming, we have evidence that he affirmed this divine ideal about men and women. So actually, let me just read you an example. Uh, Nate posted uh, a link to the first episode we did a few days ago in Reddit, and the, the very first response and then another response down the road are exactly 
what I'm talking about. And so probably most of us listening will have heard this about a thousand times before. Um, but let me just read it because I think it's a perfect example. If this person was here, I would just respond to them in person. Uh, I'm not trying to come off as rude, but I challenge you to find a verse where the Bible slightly promotes same-sex marriage. I guarantee you can't find any. Rather, you can find instances where homosexuality is condemned. All throughout the Bible, it speaks of one man and one woman marriages. To me, this just sounds like self-made interpretations driven by desires. Jesus himself says in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, and then he quotes it, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then the guy finishes, This clearly signifies a heterosexual relationship from Jesus' own words. I think it would be... I think it'd be rather impossible to be proven otherwise, providing the context above. Best of luck. <laughs> All right. So that's your challenge. Right. And then an, another one, uh, Jesus reaffirms it, it being heterosexual normativity. So it isn't really just returning to the garden. It's believing what Christ taught was true. Okay. So there we go. There's a verse, one verse, one line <laughs> that speaks about something to do with male-female marriage in Genesis 2. And Jesus quotes that line and uses it in a scenario that gets recorded in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. And those two pieces of scripture are what most people are using to argue this entire premise that God has set up sort of a divine mandate for heterosexual marriage. Uh, And... And therefore, anything beyond that is going against not just the Old Testament, but going against Jesus. (laughs) I think that's where the flag has been planted for the last uh, decade or two. And so that's what we're going to tackle. We'll even pass the buck on like, never mind the fact that claiming that the Old Testament is is promoting monogamy through and through, like you're you've lost that battle right away if you're gonna claim yeah that was a head scratcher <laughs> yeah uh with but we don't even we'll just like pretend that one didn't get thrown in there uh so here we go let's jump into genesis 224 what we're gonna do is basically show uh that our understanding of this passage and the way the passage is being quoted in the new testament is utterly backward Okay, so we won't read through all Genesis 2, but it's this whole scene where there's a man, Adam, a human, or the human, gets put into this deep trance sleep, and uh, a, a woman partner is made from that man's half, uh, can the, I, the side. Can I just say something here about the rib? Sure. This one's always bothered you, Nate. Well, yeah, I mean, I just remember as a kid... I thought this meant that I had one less rib. I don't think anyone told me that. I just I just thought it. Um, and then you laughed at me <laughs> when I said that on the show. Uh, anyway, a listener on Twitter reached out and said that they also thought that. So uh, if, if you also thought that, can you please email me? <laughs> I need more people on my team for this one. <laughs> Contact at almostheretical.com. <laughs> Okay, so that, whatever that means, happens. (laughs) Good luck, Team Nate. Uh, 
Then the text goes on. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then we get to verse 24. <clears throat> Nate, why don't you read uh, verse 24? Okay, Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Cool. Uh, now, do me a favor. Are you on a, some, you're on a computer program where you can switch over? Yeah, yeah. D- do me a favor or a, a non-favor and read the same thing from the ESV. E- All right, ESV says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What's different there? It sounds about the same. Okay. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, or then in the NIV, for example, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. Mm, Okay, yeah, I see that. What's... What's the difference between those two translations? One is just saying, hey, people do this, and here's why. And one's saying, like, kind of almost like a command, you should do this. Right. So what basically all Bible scholars have have known is that this line, verse 24, is essentially a, a later redactor's insertion into the text. Even if it weren't later, even if it was at the time of writing— of the rest of Genesis 2, it's a kind of narratival interruption, right? (laughs) The line just before this, it's saying, it's quoting Adam, the man, talking in the scene, right? It's, It's recording what's happening in the narrative of the story. But then all of a sudden, it's like the narrator turns and looks at the reader, at us, and says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is like the, the pop-out scene in the office when they go get interviewed in the conference room, right? <laughs> right, exactly. They're breaking, uh, they're breaking the rule, right? Or they're breaking the flow of the narrative. Um, and if this sounds weird, this happens all the way through the Old Testament. It's actually part of how we've understood that the Hebrew Bible is a mosaic of many, many different kinds of texts that have been stitched together and that the the people who did the stitching weren't trying to hide that it was stitched together. So and if that's a new concept for you, you can go back and listen to our series called How the Bible Works, where we talk about this mosaic. Yeah, it's similar to uh, a line we've talked about before uh, in Deuteronomy 34, where you're getting to the end of Moses's life and then you read a line, since then no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses. You're like, that's clearly not coming from Moses <laughs> right? or even a part of the story, right? It's an author. Or he was just a jerk. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that's, there's also that uh, Moses humility line too. Yeah. Um, but this is clearly saying like since then, right? It's admitting there is a time gap between whoever's writing this verse, Deuteronomy 34.10, and the implied time of the narrative that was happening before. Uh, or there's one in Joshua 4, 9. It says uh, about some rocks that have been set up to make this monument. It says, and they're still there to this day, right? Like that's clearly not part of the story. It's the narrator looking at us at the audience and rooting some part of their current uh, existence or experience, some part of the, the current audience's <laughs> cultural concern and connecting it to the text. 
So actually, if you've got a, any, we don't need to do it now. Um, if you've got any uh, a Bible software or if you go on like a Bible hub and you search to this day, <laughs> you'll find a bunch of passages in the Old Testament that are like, and the place is still called that to this day. Or, and the boundary is still there to this day, or that monument is still standing to this day. All of those are later assertions where the, the, call it a writer, call it an editor, call it a redactor, however you want to think about this, is essentially breaking from the flow of the story, looking at us and making a connection between his day and the audience's day, the original audience, and the story that's being read. So here's the point. Scholars have known that that's exactly what Genesis 2.24 is. And many, many, many scholars have pointed out that there's there's really no reason to read the Hebrew grammar in this line as anything close to a command. Uh, we don't need to get into the details, but uh, Hebrew grammar is a bit ambiguous in terms of the implied causation, essentially. So here's what the ESV is intentionally doing. We've picked on the ESV a bunch. They're not the only ones that uh, that translate the passage this way. They're using an old word, shall, that we really don't use anymore in modern vernacular, right? <laughs> uh, I can't remember the last time, Nate, I heard you use the word shall. They're using an old word that in in its original old English vernacular context had one potential where it just means this is going to happen in the future. Like, a, a man is going to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. But we all know that when we read that today, we read it as a command, right? Like I've never read thou shall or he shall and not read it as an, in, an imperative being placed upon. Isn't it just a sub out for the word should? Yeah. Which does feel kind of like commandy. So that's, that's how we read it, right? That's how the word shall affects us in 2019. Uh, <laughs> my point is, that is an, that is totally being read into the text. There's nothing grammatically there in the Hebrew that suggests that that there's any form of command here. And actually, the most logical, based on the uh, tradition of texts that we have inherited, and just the logical flow, verse twenty four is an interruption to the narrative. Right? It's talking about the scene, and then. You have this line, and then it returns in verse 25 and says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It goes back to uh, the narrative. Uh, what's in, <laughs> implied, if you see kind of the way this is working throughout the Old Testament, is this is just the narrator making a connection. He's essentially, the redactor, is like expressing a, a curious observation. Like we just read a story, this strange sort of origin story in which woman and man share one body, right? There's a, there's a man who has a body and then half of that body, rib is actually not a, not a good translation. Okay. It's basically a, a half of the man, a side of him, uh, is what the woman comes from. They're, they're coming from one physical shared, uh, body in this kind of mythical, uh, scene. And, it seems pretty clear that then the narrator's going, oh, okay, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. What's the point he's making? They started as one flesh and 
he has a belief that when two people join some sort of union, right? The word marriage isn't here. Join some sort of union like a marriage relationship that they, in some sense, spiritual or psychological or whatever, they become one flesh, one body again. And he's making this uh, narrative observation. So first point we're going to make is that nowhere in here is Genesis 2 claiming that this is like divine mandate for people to go get married uh, or that this is saying men and women get married because something to do with their maleness or their femaleness or anatomical complementary. Like you can make those claims, but you're, you're reading those into the text. Mm. What this Genesis 2.24 is actually connecting is this strange scene of a body coming, one body turning into two bodies, <laughs> and then two bodies turning into, in a, some metaphorical or spiritual sense, one body again. That's what he's connecting, right? So then let's fast forward and go to the New Testament. What was Jesus asked when he responded that way? Because that seems to, that's the whole question, right? Totally. So do you remember the, the scene? Uh, yeah, okay. So they're asking him about divorce. Some Pharisees came to him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And that's sort of where he launches into this, right? Yeah, and the text specifically says they came to him to test him, meaning they had antagonistic uh, intentions. The, the text is wanting us to get that from the get-go uh, because there's all sorts of Jewish uh, like religious legality uh, debates around what men were allowed to do with divorce. Women weren't allowed to do anything. They had no autonomy over their relational lives. Uh, we touched on this when we did our gender series and talking about the role of veils and whatnot. Uh, women were essentially treated as property. Uh, so men uh, wanted full power. So he says, for any and every reason, we want to be able to divorce our wives uh, for whatever the heck we want. None of this has to do with gender complementarianism or compatibility or <laughs> sexuality, nothing. It's about what are men allowed to do to their wives? What can they get away with? And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning, here he, he starts quoting Genesis 2, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two. Now, uh, so Jesus just actually s summarized Genesis, a portion of Genesis 1, that God made them male and female. Then he quotes Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus adds in his own words, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And then what it says very clearly is the, the guys hated this response. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce to send her away? Jesus gives another response, and, and they, the disciples say to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to even get married. Hmm. <laughs> All right, so, so whatever Jesus is saying, the very clear thing that the gospel writers want us to get is it's exactly what the dudes in this culture do not want to hear. <laughs> right? Dude's coming up asking Jesus, hey, what can we get away with in how we treat our wives? And go away angry because Jesus' Jesus's response make them think if 
if that's all we're allowed to do to our wives, we should just not even get married. Hmm. Okay, that's big. <laughs> that's big picture. But then just kind of think on how Jesus is using Genesis two twenty four. Like, Nate, like what what do you see happening here? It seems like he's more addressing the separation of these two things, not the the joining of these two things. Is that uh, make sense? Yeah. So he that's that's what the guys want, right? They want the ability to separate. Right? That's what divorce is. It's a separation. So Jesus reads the text and uses it as a as a counter, an ethical counter to their desire for an, the unlimited right to separate. Right? Um, we can get on divorce later. I think specifically Jesus is talking about what men are allowed to do with their legal right to divorce, not divorce in general here. Um, but the point is like this to Jesus, it's got nothing to do with like maleness and femaleness leading to some sort of like, and that's why we're all straight, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it has nothing to do with the context here. The point is some dudes want to justify unjust uses of divorce policy. Mm. And so Jesus quotes a passage about bonding, right? Like, Actually, Jesus' reading here is is part of why I say what becomes clear is that Genesis 2.24 originally was not trying to make a point about being male or being female. He was trying to make a point about this, this strong connection that happens <laughs> between people, and, and we'll get into some details here, that leads them to to become one flesh again. So again, it's this connection between a story about... Uh, both genders coming from one body, two people coming from one body, and then returning to one body, one flesh. Because again, the point isn't to show that like literally women came out of the side of a man. Like we're not like, okay, I have to try really hard to believe that. That's not the point. There's some imagery going on here. And what you're saying is it was taken out of one thing to make two things that then come back into one thing. That's sort of the image we're supposed to be seeing. Yeah. that And so like forget the claim isn't like, oh, you have to think... <laughs> That we have one less rib, you know, yeah. or like we have to take this literal. Just that's the theme. That's the idea being presented here. Is I, I think the the basic idea is the power of sexual desire. That that's the basic idea. That and and the thing what we'll see is that power leads people to do something to to leave their families and to pursue a relationship. And the author of Genesis two twenty four. He doesn't explain how or why two people become one flesh. That is never explained. Uh, he's just saying it as if we all know that that's what happens, right? <laughs> but he's making the connection. Of, oh, well, this origin story about two people coming out of one flesh, that would make sense about why we would become one flesh. What Jesus does is actually interesting. He takes that point and he actually adds to it. And he says that God has made these two people one flesh. God's joined them together. Genesis 2 never says that, right? And I think what we're watching Jesus do is basic <laughs> basic theology, uh, what we're all supposed to have the skill to do. He, he reads the text in terms of what it was originally for, and then he adds some creative flair in order to enact justice. <laughs> so Jesus adds God as the as the causation of this joining 
even though Genesis 2 never talks about that, in order to make it an even stronger counterpoint to these dudes' right to treat women as property. So he is, he's interpreting uh, what, well, what they would have considered their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, in a new way in order to help people for the sake of justice, to help people, to help a certain people that are being marginalized and mistreated. Yeah. I think new, maybe you can make case for it's new, but I think like... Or explaining how it was intended to be interpreted, right? But if that wasn't how people had been interpreting it, then it is a new interpretation. What he's, what he's doing is he's saying, this was the main point, and I'm going to preserve and make sure you understand the main point. And then I'm going to feel some creative improvisational freedom to expand upon that main point. So he's not going to say, this text now means to you something totally different than what it meant to the redactor of Genesis 2. But he is going to feel free to add to it to make it even more clear. And essentially what he's doing is giving it more weight hmm. uh, to challenge the people with power in society who are trying to use that power to abuse others for their own selfish privilege. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I think, A, that's a, a cool little sidebar of like, I think that's that's how the text is showing us that the text is supposed to be used. It's like this kind of give and take flow between uh, preservation and creative improvisation, right? Yeah. But the only reason I'm even talking about that is to show that the idea, what that guy on Reddit said, and the argument I've heard a hundred times, and an argument that I think, I don't know if I ever actually taught this, but I at least was a part of a church that this was our take, and I have to take responsibility for that, was saying, look, Jesus affirmed Genesis 2.24, and Genesis 2.24 was talking about God's ideal for male, female, heterosexual, monogamous marriage. Yeah. Other people will simply say Genesis 2.24 defined marriage, and Jesus here is upholding God's definition of marriage. None of that is real. <laughs> Not one bit of that is in these passages. Again, you can make a claim about a theological, philosophical, ideological claim about natural theology and what you see in the world and what you think God created and, and why. All of those things, like we've touched on this, complementarianism is a made-up construct to support an ideology, right? And it's it, the part that's made up is saying the reason this, this, and this is true, the reason marriage happens, the reason... Uh, for the the apparent prohibitions against homosexuality. The reason for apparent male-dominated hierarchies in Paul's letters, the reason for that we're going to rationalize is in this complementary nature of the genders. And they're going to point to texts like this that don't actually say, hey, here's the logic, here's God's logic, here's why he mandated marriage to be... Like, none of that's real. What actually is happening in, in Genesis 2.24 is the author is looking at his culture, at the world around him, and saying, look, people get married. <laughs> they get married without God defining marriage for them, without God telling them to get married, without God suggesting what marriage is or is not. People get married, right? People have gotten married, and it's, it's actually one of the most fascinating anthropological... Uh, 
historical things is that marriage has occurred in pretty much every culture without any divine mandate for doing that. Some sort of survival technique, right? Like it has to be some sort of way that humans have decided to, we survive better this way to carry on the human race or something like that, right? I don't know. Something, yeah, you you could do. And I think like people, like go for it to do, you know, wise, careful, (laughs) uh, empathetic, uh, speculation, right, about why marriage has been what it is and why it's changed. And- so you're saying people were getting married long before Genesis was actually completed. That's th- redacted and completed. Y- yes, that that is just historically factually true. But that's a big. That's that's probably something that a lot of people wouldn't uh, know and wouldn't admit. Right. That because I mean I always had a picture that like Genesis, you know, this was the earliest thing and now just like scientifically and historically we know that's not true you know and this doesn't mean that like genesis or the bible are less true or less important i mean that's why we do this show we we think it's actually more important than we ever thought it was before but we have to come to grips with what this really is what we're really talking about here when we talk about the bible and there are i mean there are other texts that predate the Bible. There are scientific and anthropological and archaeological findings that we have that show that this is not the first story that ever happened. So I'm just saying that to support your explanation, Tim, that the redactor or the writer, or maybe both, are looking around them at what's happening in their culture and saying, yeah, here's something that happens in our culture. You know, marriage happens, maybe not even thinking about that. And saying, let me explain why that happens. Not saying, here's what marriage is. And, you know, those are different things. But I think it's an important distinction. It's a yeah, how many times in the wars, you know, the original, uh, well, since I was in California, original to me, Prop 8 battle Prop 8, yeah. against legalization of gay marriage, uh, how many times did you hear language about how God defines marriage? Tim, right? Tim, I was a producer at the largest Christian talk show in America, which was in California. KKLA Los Angeles when this whole thing was going down with Prop 8 and I mean so I I heard like hundreds of guests come on the show uh, the host talk for hundreds of hours about Prop 8 about gay marriage and I heard this argument be made many 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 times in that whole thing right in seminary with one of the heads of the seminary uh, theological department language uh, basically divine mandate or that same uh, like kind of divine ideal definition of marriage was used. And it's very easy to point out the problems of like, if this is a command to do marriage, like how do you understand the fact that Jesus and Paul had, had no <laughs> uh, conception that one needed or should be married, right? Like mm-hmm. right away, there's huge ramifications. There's major ethical ramifications and I've seen this play out for, for decades of how single people, especially single women, uh, are completely ostracized uh, in church culture because of this kind of focus on the family uh, uplifting of like the, the heterosexual 50s American family ideal, right? Um, but, li- but literally, there is no passage in the entire Bible that 
suggests that marriage as a as a thing that we do or an institution or a tradition or a a covenant bond between that that that's from God. Like nowhere in there does it suggest that. And actually on page two and elsewhere through the Bible, the opposite is asserted. Not like when we talk about redactors assertions, right? These lines uh, throughout the Torah and other places where the narrator kind of breaks the flow and turns and looks at us and and makes this little one-liner comment. Um, That's not like we're catching them doing something wrong. (laughs) You know, like they're not trying to hide that. They're actually... Those lines show up often at the end of sections, the end of the book of Deuteronomy. They're transition lines. They're actually trying to bring attention to those lines in order to help the audience connect this primeval mythology, right, of this strange scene of God putting the man to sleep in a garden and building a woman from his his side, connecting that strange stuff, those primeval origin stories, to like real life that's happening, and so, and, and a lot of them are like trying to, to give the text some additional authority by saying like, look, that monument is still there or that cave is still called whatever. Um, and you know that to this day, which means this story kind of has some uh, significance or validity. Uh, they're trying to draw attention to those lines. And in this one, the whole point is like, hey guys, people get married. Like, have we ever thought about why? <laughs> you know, like... It's not, and he doesn't say here, because God made a rule that this is what people should do. He's, he's making a, a connection to this strange sense of, of the shared origin of, of both male and female peoples and a connection to the kinds of bonding that happens through sex. And you can elaborate on that or speculate other parts of ideology that come from that. Uh, but his main premise is that marriage is happening out in the world. Not because God gave it to us, not because God told us how to do it. And nowhere uh, in in absolute opposition to uh, this guy's comment on Reddit, and I don't care about the Reddit thread, it's more just this is exactly what I've heard, even the people who are directors of, of seminaries. That's what I'm saying. It's like this is coming all the way from the top of the stream in evangelical theology is a completely fabricated concept that marriage is a is a divine covenant. Many people, and I... I challenged the guy, literally called it a, a sacrament, hmm. called marriage a sacrament. Well, because I've heard the like people that are trying to be kind of progressive in their take, like, hey, I su- I'll support uh, gay marriage federally at the state level, all that. Like, yeah, like, but then the definition of marriage inside the church is so clear that like when we do a Christian marriage inside the church, we'll do it only for two heterosexual people. Um you know what I'm saying? Have you heard that as well? Like the mm-hmm. people that are kind of like support the any kind of laws being passed federally because that's just the the quote unquote worldly definition of marriage anyways. And there's always been this underlying definition of marriage from God himself. And it comes, yeah, it comes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Right. And in Genesis 2.24, it gets quoted at, at wedding ceremonies all the time. And I think I did a wedding. I think I read it. But... uh unless I'm, you know, horribly misremembering my past life, <laughs> I, I don't think I ever suggested that this was somehow uh, a divine mandate or like a restriction on what can happen, right? It was more this this interesting origin story about uh, this attraction between between people. And so the, the first piece, and this is when I was in seminary, I'd already seen this, and it just drove me through the wall that all so many scholars know that 
there's no real rationale for this being read as a as a command or translated as a command. Uh, there's no justification for doing that. The clear reading, especially if you're able to get into the Hebrew, is that this is one of many narratival insertions, uh, making an observation about something that's already happening out in the world. Um, and people were just utterly unwilling to even question that this was a command written in Genesis 2. But so then, so I already knew that. I was kind of engaged in this war. It just made me want to, you know, get the heck out of uh, out of seminary world. Uh, but I recently discovered uh, an article that reference. So what I hadn't kind of seen is, you know, like, what's the point? of of the author like to to take page two and stick a thought in there right <laughs> like to interrupt yeah. something to offer your opinion like that's a pretty brash move so like seems pretty early <laughs> yeah right uh like pick your shots dude <laughs> uh but it's like okay so what like why did this matter you know what is the motivating factor what is the main thematic concern uh of this passage and some scholars had made the case that uh that it was uh, related to incest and had something to do with with people leaving their family in order to pursue relationship, right? To like get outside of uh, the family and this kind of development in ancient cultures away from incest. And that never really held much water. It didn't really seem to make all that much sense. Um, but so like what we are doing or what uh, the world of people who are using this to affirm the traditional view of marriage or to deny gay people uh, inclusion into marriage at all is they're reading in our modern day cultural concerns, right? In the sexual revolution that now we understand new things and people have been brave to come out of the closet. Uh, and so our one of our many debates today is over gender and sexuality. They're reading that into this passage and being like, that's what this is about. It's about gendered. Like it's about being like complementary genders and how there's only male and female people and nothing else and nothing in between and gender could never be a spectrum and the reading in like and therefore marriage could never be anything other than heterosexual, right? Hmm. So the question is like clearly that if I think if we just step back, even if you're conservative, like you should be able to see that's not what the author <laughs> of any part of the the biblical text, like they weren't thinking what we are thinking today. Uh, so what were they thinking? Uh, so here's where this article was really insightful. I'll kind of try to summarize it. And what we'll see is it comes back around to reinforce actually uh, the take that I've described already. I would post a link to it, but I don't think it's available publicly on the internet. It's one of those you have to have uh, access to an academic database. It's on the nerd web. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's by a scholar named Megan Warner and the title is therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, marriage and intermarriage in Genesis two twenty four. And so, uh, she goes through uh, a couple angles at an argument, um, that I think are undeniably convincing, but the main conclusion is that the concern of whoever it is that added this line, Genesis 2.24, or even if you don't like that language, whoever it is that wrote this line, the main concern that they were getting at was the topic of intermarriage. Uh, in other words, the topic of, of Israelites marrying non-Israelites, right? So clearly, uh, 21st century arguments over sexuality and, and ethics related to sexuality and gender was not what they were wrestling with. I, th I think the argument about whether incest was what was on their mind is is not a great argument. Um, 
And Megan Warner, what she does is goes through all sorts of evidence, including how the language in this passage uh, has parallels that are only used in uh, words and the, the forms of words that are only used in other passages in the Old Testament, places like the book of Ruth, where the, the topic at hand is the intermarriage between Israelites and non-Israelites, which was an incredibly uh, embattled topic in the centuries leading up to Jesus' day and, and Jesus' day. Essentially, uh, the historical significance was you have Israel get exiled, right, for several generations living amongst other people groups, the most recent being Persia before they were allowed to return. So you have basically two threads of, of thinking. One is to say, we have to preserve our people by never marrying anybody who's not our people, right? Hmm. And another is to say, like, don't be crazy. <laughs> like, we're living in Persia. We're, we could be here for hundreds of years. Like, it's okay. So what you actually see is there is a, a battle. Different biblical authors in the Old Testament take a totally different stance. Uh, so if you remember, there's a really gross view uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah where they return from exile and they start rebuilding uh, the temple. And then they find out that there are a bunch of kids there who are the children of mixed marriages between Israelites and non-Israelites. And so they get all the guys around to decide what they should do. And of course, the guys do what guys do. And they make, a, I would call, horrific uh, ethical ruling that uh, that all of the Israelites who are a part of uh, mixed marriages need to go and, and abandon uh, the non-Israelite spouses. That's the decree. And then they go about uh, trying to put that into place. But you have other passages in the prophetic books which make the exact opposite uh, statement, that that the response to, to this fact of intermarriage during the exile, the, the better ethical response is to just move on, maintain the marriage, and go forward. That, there's evidence in the era of this text, is is one of the, like, sex concerns, right? Like, that's actually what their culture was wrestling with, the ethical questions, the debates they were having. And uh, and one of the main pieces of evidence, which I think is just totally overwhelming, when we read the passage, uh, it's translated... For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife or, or cleave to his wife. Uh, but that word, leave, is translated in almost every other circumstance in the Old Testament. It's used like 70-something times uh, in a much starker term of to abandon or forsake. So when you get passages where it's like, and Israel has forsaken Yahweh, it's the same word. Mm. Uh, or, you know, people de decrying like, will Yahweh abandon us or forsake us? Like God will never forsake us. It's that word. So it's like leaving, but with a much more dramatic, hostile sense, right? It's like an, ab a, an abandonment. Interesting. So this is potentially talking about something very, very narrow, actually. Well, n specific. Yeah, I think it's a specific concern. So the first is, okay, this word, Leave is actually a really strong word, uh, more like abandon. And the second part is, is Warner just points out, like, and you can see this all throughout the Hebrew Bible and other ancient texts, like, men didn't leave. Like, men went and scooped up women and brought them to their house. It was a, a patrimonial culture in which 
wives, when, when women, often young girls, became wives, they moved into the, the male patriarch's house, right? You see that all over the place. Like when in the Genesis stories of the patriarchs sending people to go find women to bring back for the sons to have as wives, like what you don't see is men going off to go move in with the, the woman's family. Uh, or when you get a story like that, uh, it's making a countercultural point. So, so one of Warner's other points is to say like, this isn't about a casual, like that's why men like turn 18 and they go move out and they pay their own rent and they find a wife. Um, right. What he's actually saying, what the author is saying is there's something about, remember we just in Genesis two, read the story about this weird scene a woman being created from the side of a man. There's something about that that creates such a strong desire, a sexual desire, that men will actually abandon their family and be united to his wife with an implicit undercurrent of the question being, why have so many men abandoned their Jewish Israelite fathers and mothers to go be with other people? (laughs) Do you kind of get the the connection here with yeah, yeah. marrying mm-hmm. outside? So if it's simply like, you know, most parents want their, their children to go have happy relationships, right? <laughs> so why would you use such a strong word like abandon your father or mother if you're just going to get married, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the sense is like there is some, some ill being done to the father and mother, and that is essentially an idiom representing the people group, <laughs> the tribe, the, the nation. And the concern here is, is why, why does a man do something that so many of his neighbors think he shouldn't be doing, marrying a Persian girl, <laughs> right? Why would a man do that? And he's saying it has something to do with this story about how, how we come from a shared origin and it creates this strong desire. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that seems pretty, like, I get that. That seems pretty um, uh, clear. And I think I think that probably is what's going on there. Okay, so so you've kind of, uh, helped debunk like why this verse it shouldn't really be used to support kind of this anti-LGBTQ inclusion position. So, so where do we kind of go from here, I guess? Yeah, so let me read, uh, I think, a succinct conclusion from Warner's article here. And remember, I had mentioned that she had referred to this line of argument claiming uh, this divine ideal or this divine definition of marriage uh, as this like second front in the battle over uh, sexuality, homosexuality, all that mumbo jumbo. Uh, So she says, they argue that Genesis 2.24 establishes a normative and prescriptive definition of marriage that precludes homosexual expression and establishes a biblical theology of sexuality that should be brought to bear on interpretation of all subsequent biblical texts. It's basically what we're saying, right? It's like this is a restriction, a divine ideal that then we have to force upon every other <laughs> every other text we read and even just the big picture questions of like how would Jesus think about sexuality if he lived today, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's her point is that's what they're doing. But she continues, the findings of our study, however, indicate that this second front is a dead end. Far from setting out to regulate and restrict the institution of marriage, Genesis 2.24 acknowledges 
without narratorial censor of any kind, the propensity of men to pursue inappropriate marriages that defy the wishes and schemes of their parents and, by implication, society and religious institutions. This study suggests that the particular brand of inappropriate relationship that the authors of Genesis 2.24 had in mind was intermarriage. So her main point is that, <laughs> is, is my main point, uh, and I think she did a, a great job and it's, it's highly convincing, is that this whole argument that's been the strongest front, I think, of the non-affirming church uh, in, in most of my adult life is, is basically an, an unjustifiable interpretation of the Bible. Okay. Let's pop out here a little bit because we are going to come back to this. We wanted to share our thoughts because our patrons nominated it and voted for it. And, um, we get so many questions about it. So we wanted to weigh in because this is topic, um, is one that hurts a lot of people. And we wanted to speak out against that. Um, provide a better case from the Bible for an affirming position. But we do plan on coming back to this topic in, in the future. Um, I, but I'm just curious, Tim, what do you think is left? Like this, to me, what we talked about in these two episodes has been one of the strongest cases I think that's used. And sometimes I've even thought like, I mean, God created this in the beginning. I don't really know how to get around that. Um, so yeah, what else do you think is standing in the way beyond just, you know, what the Bible says. Because I think people are to the point where they want to find this in the Bible, as in they want to find a way to reject these people. And that might sound really strong, especially because whenever a pastor or church gets up to preach the sermon on their stance on LGBTQ people, it's always done in love. And, um, you know, I just listened to one from the church I used to be a part of in Simi Valley, California, and it was done in love, like, you're welcome here, and we love you, and it sounds really good, but ultimately they come down on the side of, you know, there's something wrong with you, and they're not going to say it this way, but still, you know, there's something wrong about you, and you need to repent and deny this part of you, like, you know, whatever it is, and it's hurting a lot of people, and so I'm just wondering, why is there this desire to find this? I mean, as a church, why aren't we leaning towards the side of love and inclusion? And I just, I'm really, I really am confused by it. Yeah. I mean, there are probably multiple answers, but the first one comes to me is to control, right? We've talked about that a lot. Uh, a natural response or an, a common response to fear is the attempt to control. Um, so, you know, why have we read into, falsely read into the Bible the idea that that God has has defined marriage, like it's so that we can say that we control what marriage is, right? And then and we literally legislated that control, or tried to. The church did. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that's happening on on literally a state government level, uh, or a theological. Uh, you know, inclusion, exclusion level or the Twitter debate level. Uh, Like, I think it's scary for people to admit that it has always been the world's cultures that have defined what marriage is and how we should should do sex and relationships. Like, and that the Bible is fine with that. Um, That means it's like, again, we came back to this, like that means it's actually up to us to be like responsible moral agents who even if we're Christians, won't get off the hook for like, well, you know, you may have lived a terribly unjust life that hurt a lot of people, but you were a Christian, so you're cool. 
you know you know it's like yeah but but this is such a huge topic too like i really think that this is going to be the topic and maybe maybe a few other large topics out there are going to be the things that divide the church and you know one half will be able to continue on and the other half won't i'm talking over the course of like 25 50 years here i mean i feel like this is going to be the thing that a church will die on the hill because they held fast to their biblical position you know and they're going to go down with the ship and um it wasn't on this topic but albert moeller had a tweet today or maybe it was last night it was about complementarianism let me let me just read it here he says we've reached a critical moment in the southern baptist convention when there are now calls to retreat from our biblical convictions on complementarianism and embrace the very error that the SBC repudiated over 30 years ago. Honestly, I never thought I would see this day. So it's just funny to me because he sees this wave of people saying, no, I don't think that way of viewing women is beautiful and loving and it's leading to goodness. I don't see that. I don't think that's what the biblical writers had in mind. You know, on and on. He's he's not he's seeing that and he's not saying maybe I need to rethink this you know he's he's saying I can't believe this is happening you know we're finally at that point when I'm sure from his perspective like I'm gonna hold fast and I'm gonna be that small minority that held fast you know and I mean I used to picture it this way like I'll be that small tiny little fraction of people that are on the straight and narrow and everyone else is on the highway to hell you know what I mean I mean totally but so so think about what we just looked at with this Genesis two twenty four line. It's another part where you get deep into thought and you find <clears throat> a, a very serious ramification that I think could could change everything, at least for people who want uh, to be open to change. So remember said interracial marriage was the war going on within Israel. That was the ethical war over sexual relationships going on at the time that most of the scriptures were written. And I, I use the example of Ezra and Nehemiah to say that, that one biblical author— that had already been written, most likely, that text had been written by the time this redactor added this line in Genesis 2, took the stance that the only right religious option to get faithfulness back so that Yahweh would be with its people and they would have their great nation again, literally think, think about the, just the similarities. Yeah. They're trying to rebuild their nation and make it great again. They'd have their big temple back. That the only thing that would allow that to happen is if they all abandoned and divorced anyone who was mixed race and and if they utterly condemned interracial marriage do you know it's illegal to have an interracial marriage what through the 60s in the u.s 70s maybe yeah like we just got finished thinking that was an ethical war that the church needed to stand up against (laughs) mixed race marriages right and now you and i go like that's nuts right like that's utterly nuts today but so but think about this the guy who, who put together page two of the Bible took it upon himself to say, you know what? Pardon my language here. That's bullshit. What the, what the guy who wrote Genesis 2.24 did so far from giving us the proof text for, for a non-affirming theology, what he did was actually undercut Ezra and Nehemiah's position and said, actually, look, there's something going on in human anthropology that makes desire so strong that people go out and marry others outside, outside of their race. And you know what? Jesus adds on top of that, God did that. God does that. Think about it. We got the, Jesus was questioned with a, tested with this question on the ethics of divorce. And 
remember, I'm just saying the whole ethical decision was, should Jews divorce their, their wives of other races? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus comes down and says, no, right? Where Ezra and Nehemiah said, yes. The author of, the writer of Genesis 2.24 took it upon himself to undercut the Bible. <laughs> and that, that working against itself is in the Bible. That's, that's part of our tradition, right? Like that's part of what, the, what is biblical is to say, actually, the way that we've been thinking about these ethics is wrong. And, and we, uh, we actually can, can change and rethink that. But then think about this. So their fight was intermarriage. Our fight now is over LGBTQ equality and affirmation, fully as is to be married, to be transgender, full affirmation. The point that he makes, the way he essentially argues with, with Ezra Nehemiah's stance is to say, you know what? This desire that people feel, it's somehow rooted in how they were created. This origin story about how men and women came to be in the world, how humanity got here by God, that desire is what justifies this intermarriage practice that, that other people along me want to condemn. But I'm going to say, I see that this desires from God and therefore it ethically justifies that. What have we learned in our lifetime, Nate, if not the fact that a sizable percentage, millions of people have been given by God based on the, the, the nature of their creation and their existence, a desire to be in relationship with someone of the same sex, right? And what we're seeing on the second page of the Bible is someone make a creative critique of the Bible as it exists to change and progress ethically on the same exact lines that desire justifies behavior that Ezra Nehemiah wants to condemn. Like, what is that if not an exact paradigm for what so many people have been crying out, saying the church needs to do, <laughs> which is to, to get with the system and realize that non-affirming theology is literally killing kids. Like, it's literally the suicide rate among Christian teenagers is three or four times higher <laughs> among LGBTQ teenagers than it is uh, amongst straight kids. Like, and we have right here in Genesis a precedent <laughs> for, for looking at what it is, how humans exist in the world and making an ethical progressive stance in order to protect the most marginalized people. In Jesus' day, it was women who were subject to their husband's divorce. In this guy's day, it was outsider racial minorities who were subject to being abandoned, sent back to their own countries. In our day, it's, it's sexual and gendered minorities. Yeah. Amen. I think, and this is what I was getting at before, you either want to find this, you either want to find a way to welcome LGBTQ people, or you don't. And it's fitting to me that right now as we're recording this, Rachel Held Evans' funeral is going on, and thousands of people are watching it streamed online, and I have it on here in the corner. Um, and I remember when she was on our show last year, she said that line, and I think it's in one of her books as well, but when you read the Bible, you, you can find whatever you want to find. You can find a bomb, B-A-L-M, or a bomb, B-O-M-B. You're going to find whatever you want to see. Um, and this show, what we just did, is probably not going to convince anyone. And I say this all the time. The heart of this show is not to convince people who think the opposite of what we think. I think that's nearly impossible to do. I know there's a lot of people who think that's more possible than I do, and they're doing that work. Um, I just don't have a lot of hope around that because 
honestly, I haven't seen that happen much. Um, but I'm encouraged by the stories where that does happen. It's just, I still think in stories where that happens, the person, you know, deep down wanted to find something different than what they previously believed. Um, they were searching, but I, I've just seen so many times where someone starts to see something, they start down that path a bit. Um, and then they quickly just run back to the shelter of the circle that they are already entrenched in, you know? And, um, so I, I don't know how possible it is, but that's just, that's the unhopeful side. Uh, but I know that more and more people are wanting to see this interpretation in the scriptures because of the, like you mentioned, the suicide rates um, and just all the hurt that it's causing some of the most marginalized people in our society. So I think if you want to see this, you'll see it. If you don't, you won't. Um, so it's encouraging to me that there's lots and lots of people out there that want to see this. Um, and it's also discouraging that there's lots that don't, um, but I'm glad and grateful for you, our listeners, you listening right now in your car or in the office with one earbud in while you do your work or in the kitchen or wherever you are. I'm hopeful and I'm grateful that this show and this audience of this show is growing, um, and is passionate and is caring about these people that are being marginalized and oppressed and hurt, that you want to find and and see this in the Bible, ways to welcome them in. So thank you. Even though it doesn't seem like maybe you're making a big impact, um, but you know maybe you've changed or expanded your thinking on this. Maybe maybe you've started to speak up when someone in your church shares ideas that would hurt our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Maybe you're taking even bigger steps to take some of the things you're learning on this show and and other places about how specific Bible verses can't be used to keep people out anymore, and you're helping to start teach those things. Whatever it is, both big and small, I just want to say thank you. These acts take courage, and it's never too late to stand up and fight for those that are hurting. Even if you were like me, a part of hurting those people for so many years. You are leaving the world better than you found it. You are bringing the kingdom of God. So that's, that's me trying to be hopeful. How's that, Timmy? (laughs) Yeah, it might be better than, than my attempt at being hopeful. It's just like thinking on, you know, the split is going to happen, right? It all, it always has like, the Baptist denomination split in half over slavery, right? <laughs> and the one half died. But what it meant for that half to die was to live on as the Southern Baptist Convention and be the kind of ethically defunct, smells more of patriarchal authoritarian politics that refuses to handle abuse in its pews like than it does of Jesus. Like that's what it means for it to die. you know? So the reality is like, we still have to live with the SBC. Like they're still here. Uh, and and there's going to be the world that, that continues to uh, outcast LGBTQ people. Um, but like, there's a part of me that goes like, you know what? Like the SBC's dead. Like, (laughs) like, and it has been probably for 150 years. Right. Um, and I know that's dramatic and there are all sorts of exceptions and like, um, but I think you can draw a line between, 
at least a somewhat zigzaggy straight line between a decision to stand with the the rights of a church to enslave people of color and where we've gotten today with this war against women and <laughs> uh, refusal to to take accountability. So like if your hope is in convincing people or this like great revival where the entire American church like it's just not gonna you know what I mean like it's just not yeah. <laughs> that's not real. Um, the United Methodist Church is probably about to split in half. Like we're watching that happen. And I, I guess I'm just coming to the point where like, I think what it means to be hopeful is like to realize it's half, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's never going to be a hundred percent, but it's half. And I just five years ago, uh, had totally different views and hurt people with those views, yep, right? Like too. I myself changed <laughs> and was changed by other people being brave to share their stories and tell me how I was hurting them. Um, and, and that kind of thing is possible. Um, so it's hard for me as a, as a perfectionist to let go of, you know, wanting to burn down the system unless it's a hundred percent, uh, good and just, um, and I don't think you should stick around at churches that are hurting people. Like yeah. I don't think you should, you should, uh, or give to organizations that are hurting people or whatever. Um, but I think that's what it means to kind of like emotionally, uh, sustain ourselves in this thing. Yep. Love to hear your thoughts and questions and stories. If this uh, touches you in a more uh, personal way, um, based on your story or your loved one's stories, like we'd love to hear that. We are planning on doing more um, on this topic going forward, and um, we can use all of that um, in that series when we do this in a more full and robust way. So, and just a quick teaser coming out next week is an interview we just did with christina cleveland it was one of my favorite conversations i've had in years i'm not kidding so if you're not subscribed subscribe and tune in next week yeah so thanks so much for hanging out with us and being a part of this community Um, we have a second podcast and uh, conference calls that we do um, through our patreon community if you want to join that we'd love to have you be a part of that we're probably going to be doing our next conference call here soon You can do that all at patreon.com slash almost heretical. We'll see you next time. See ya.